0: What goes up must go up. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool analyst Jason Moser. Jason, how's your Monday going so far?
1: Hey, Deidre, just great. How about yours?
0: Well, it's pretty good and really good, I guess, if you're watching the stock market. We hit an all-time high for the S&P 500 on Friday, and this morning it zoomed up again. Interesting, because the last all-time high was set in January of 2022. Not that long ago, but feels like yeah. feels like a long time.
1: <laughs> it does, doesn't it?
0: It does. What should we be thinking as, as we uh, look at this rally?
1: Well, you know, I was saying on on Motley Fool Money on Friday, uh, um, you know, for as well as the market performed in 2023, it just didn't quite feel like it. Maybe, maybe there are just sort of pockets about performance. Um, in to that point, I mean, you, you just you, we can't ignore the Magnificent Seven, right? I mean, I know a lot of people are probably sick of us saying this, but the fact of the matter is, while we've talked about the Magnificent Seven for a while, their outsized impact. Cannot be ignored. I mean, when you look at these seven companies, and then you think that over the course of 2023, the 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 laggard of the seven was Apple, which was still up like 50 percent and essentially better than double the market's returns. There, I mean, we can just see that clearly. Those seven companies have had a big impact on the way the overall market has performed. Now, that doesn't mean that the rest of the market hasn't performed well or or offered investors opportunity. I mean obviously stocks on the whole are performing very well. I think a lot of that really is is being driven by this idea that inflation really is now starting to come back down. Um the Fed's actions have have made a difference. The conversation that comes with that, right, is that now we we went through such a long stretch of 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 cut or of, of pushing rates up now it's a matter of when will they start cutting rates and and maybe the question is are are they going to be cutting rates sooner rather than later or is this something that will be put off for a little while right it's that question of cutting rates when because you can versus cutting rates because you have to and i think we're not quite there yet as to understanding exactly which scenario will play out but I mean there, there's still reasons I I, I don't want to be a, a, a you know a debbie downer I mean I, I, I want to only be as glass half full as possible but I mean there are reasons at least to at least be sort of sort of skeptical I mean I, I you look at the, at the holiday spending here for example and you look at you look at credit card debt I mean credit card debt at a, at a record high delinquency rates have actually doubled over the past two years and you know if, if you look back during during the pandemic right, Those delinquency rates were one thing, but but if you look at delinquencies while they were at historic lows during the the COVID nineteen pandemic, the rate of people who've gone more than thirty days without paying their credit card bill has has recently it it topped pre pandemic levels. So I mean that that just is all to say that you know we're 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 comparing sort of apples to apples, right? It's, It's a bit more of a normal time versus a normal time. Buy now, pay later. You look at that. That's something we talk about a lot on this show. I mean, that that was a big contributor to holiday spending, boosted holiday spending about fourteen percent, which which is obviously a lot. Uh, we're starting to see some impacts there. Uh, some questions as to whether that is is debt that's going to be paid back, um, or or at least is it going to be paid back on time? Uh, student student loan payments kind of coming back into play here. So I, I feel like there's a lot of stuff we're going to see unfolding here over the course of the next couple of quarters that'll kind of determine whether we, you know, hit that soft landing that I think a lot of a lot of optimists are hoping that we hit uh, versus something like maybe a less than soft landing should I just say, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah, I think that's a concern, and so yeah, so we're looking for for interest rates. We're looking to see something there that we'll probably know in a couple of months. But the other thing that I'm thinking about is you said, uh, like you said, the Magnificent Seven. So much of this is the AI story. So what is as we look forward to earnings? Is that going to be a like? Could that be a place where we get we get a little blip here of like a, a not a not a full blown reckoning, but definitely a check in.
1: I mean, it's it, it's absolutely possible. I mean, AI has become the the headline uh, du jour, right? And, and I mean, for for a long time. And I mean, I read a great article over the over the weekend uh, by I think it was Christopher Mims in the Wall Street Journal that was kind of talking about these technologies that have gotten so much attention over the last several years that maybe it's time we start pulling back the expectations on them. I mean, artificial intelligence uh, clearly kind of taking over, whereas you know all of these technologies we've we've been talking about in regard to things like blockchain and in crypto uh, or or autonomous driving, you know maybe or or even the metaverse. I mean these are those are the three the three points of the article where it's like so much money has been invested. In these spaces, and so much time has been spent on talking about the merits and in, in sort of the, the the benefits of these spaces, but we haven't really seen that stuff materialize yet. And so now we're kind of the, the conversation's moving on to AI. Uh, we're talking a little bit less about these other things, and, and that makes sense. I mean, the question is, will AI actually materialize into something? At least in the near term, that's a bit more tangible. I think a lot of these technologies, and it's not to say that things like crypto and autonomous driving and and whatnot, and the, the metaverse, it's not to say they won't pay off, but it is to say that maybe it's going to take a little bit longer than, than perhaps a lot of people expected. Uh, I, I don't know that AI is necessarily going to fall under that bucket. I think we can we can really see. A lot of the benefits that come from AI, but they not they, they may not necessarily be directly connected to us as investors, right? It feels like a lot of this is stuff AI is really is really benefiting us behind the scenes, making our lives easier, uh, but not necessarily as explicit uh, of an opportunity for investors as, as we may hope. I guess I guess time will tell.
0: I think the other thing that I'm looking at is we're, we're seeing these results in aggregate, but I'm also, I mean, January has been a rough month in terms of layoffs. I mean, some of the companies kind of expected like uh, Stitch Fix or even SolarEdge, but, but Amazon, Alphabet. So I'm wondering if we're seeing signs from individual companies versus the, the kind of the aggregate rise up. Does, does that worry you at all? It worries me a little bit.
1: Uh, it, well I mean I, th- I think that's fair right I mean it's it's important to know that I mean, we're seeing these cuts across the spectrum I mean the companies that are doing well and companies that are not doing well are all cutting cutting jobs right I mean this is not something that's just like you limited to one specific demographic of of uh, of, of, of capitalism so to speak uh, you look at a report published by Challenger Gray and Christmas which is in the, the 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 hiring space the pace of job cuts by US employers In 2023, we saw that number surge 98% compared to the previous year. I mean, layoffs are a real thing and they're happening across the board. Um, I mean, the costs of employment are going up. We're seeing unions, clearly, unions have been a big story over the last couple of years. And I mean, whether you're pro union or anti union, I, I mean, it doesn't matter to me but but they are taking advantage of this point in history right this advantage of the cycle and and i think that's what makes sense right unions have to take advantage they got to strike while the iron's hot so they're doing that and and so what that does is that that changes the cost structure of some of these businesses right the cost of doing everything is going up, even with inflation coming back down. I mean, I think most people would agree the cost of living is a lot higher. You just to tie this, tie this into, into just your everyday life. I was looking at this the other day. The cost of auto insurance is up twenty point three percent in December from a year earlier. And when you look at something like auto insurance, which is basically a requisite, everybody needs it. If you're going to be driving a car, and most people are, you're paying auto insurance in some form or another. Uh, I mean, when those costs jump like that, when they, when they increase like that, that's something that impacts everybody, from consumers to, to, to the places that those consumers shop. Uh, so, it's it's always something to keep in mind.
0: Yeah, and I think this is just a reminder that a rally is great, a rally is exciting, but a rally is also. It, stock markets have cycles. We we are going to go through cycles, and and everything that goes down goes up, and things that go up, well, they they go down at some point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes,
1: they
0: Unfortunately, do. let's talk about a company that has had some layoffs uh, recently, the Macy's, that they announced layoffs on uh, on Friday, announced they're closing more stores. And then over the weekend, they they confirmed what we knew in December, which is that they had received a takeover offer for 5.8 billion. They officially rejected it, but I felt like they left the door open. And it's an interesting play because it's it's a brand, it's a great brand, uh, a fading brand, in a in a vertical that is definitely seeing pressure. You've also got a nice bit of real estate, including you know that that prime flagship store in Herald Square we know private equity wants it. Do you think there's a public play here? So I mean there
1: absolutely could be a public angle there. I would imagine this is more attractive from a private equity perspective. I mean, when you look at the the reason why this deal didn't happen, right? There are concerns over over financing and valuation. I mean, valuation is is obviously a bit more subjective. I mean, the financing Pieces. I mean, you're going to make that assessment and, and and go forward. To me, though, when you look at Macy's, Macy's as a business, I think we all would agree. I mean, every metric. This is a business that is 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 challenged right now, right? Every metric tells you that this is a challenged business. I mean, revenue growth is not there, right? Uh, cash flow, we're seeing cash burn. Margins. On, on the decline. I mean, so I, they're, they're, every metric tells you this is a challenged business. And from that perspective, it's probably nicer to be able to keep that stuff off of the public radar. So, I mean, like a private equity can get in there buy this out. And then go in there and do their thing to try to fix the business. Now, the the problem is at the end of the day, if that happens, then at some point down the line, you probably see an IPO again, and then and they're just saddled with a ton of debt. I mean, that's happened before. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know that that necessarily is the the ideal long term play. But but it to me. It feels like still, even though this deal didn't really work out, and it still may, you never know, they could come to a negotiation, but it does seem like the PE perspective is a bit more of an attractive one, um, as opposed to staying in the public eye.
0: Yeah, and it's, I've been watching this, too, because you've got a, a CEO who's been there for a while. He announced his retirement last year. It's uh, supposed to be in, in February. Yet uh, No official date has been released yet. But you've got this new CEO, uh, Tony Spring, who's the president of Bloomingdale's, coming in with an idea of we're going to do smaller stores, we're going to get off mall. If you were in charge of Macy's at this pivot point, w- what would you do?
1: That is a... That is a big question. Um, <laughs> right?
0: It's a fun I, one, though.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, because there are a number of different ways to look at it, right? I'm assuming that you want to continue on as you know a real t- a, a retail concept. I mean, the key for retail operators you want to, you want to keep growing your revenue, right? And and selling stuff, and and that ebbs and flows. I mean, you can't force people to buy stuff. I mean, obviously, you can create a store with with things that people want to buy but I feel like I'd focus more at least on what in the near term at least what I could control right and in looking at at the metrics like I was talking about earlier the metrics of this business are are in decline focus on the cost structure of the business right focus on the the inputs that go into making this business run and, and if you just look at operating margin alone for this business you go back 10 years right operating margin has been cut by more than half over the last 10 years so clearly this is a business that is not operating as efficiently as it could and and that's exacerbated when you consider declining sales and so obviously they need to they need to figure the sales part out but i think that you know, the operating side is a bit more in their control in the near term. So, I think I would really just be laser-focused on that. And then the other thing I keep coming back to, and I just I wonder if this is not something that we might not see at some point, because you hear folks talk about Macy's and the real estate dynamic right there, real estate being a big part of the investment uh, thesis there. I mean, I wonder if there's not something where Macy's Figures out a way to become a, re, a real estate investment trust, right? A REIT, or or if they merge with a REIT or something like that, to, to take advantage of the real estate side of that of that argument. Because I mean, it, it is it is something worth keeping in mind. I mean, there is that dynamic to the business. Um, but yeah, I, I think near term, I'd be really focused on just uh, the costs that go into maintaining this uh, this business.
0: Yeah, you were just giving me flashbacks to to there with uh, with what Sears did to try to spin <laughs> try to spin out that read aspect yeah. and, and and get the value yeah. there. That 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 did not work out. Although those properties definitely still have it's value. A t-
1: it, it's a really tough problem to solve.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jason, did you watch football this weekend?
1: I did. I watched a lot of football this weekend. About did you? I think a lot of you did. did.
0: I did, and I'm thinking about the reason I'm asking is because it was a tough weekend for Sports Illustrated. A uh, bunch of the, their employees were let go on Friday. And it's it's an interesting case because the brand used to be owned by Meredith, which publishes Food and & Wine and a bunch of other things. They sold it in 20, uh, 2019 to Authentic Brands, which owns Reebok, it's got Brooks Brothers, it's got, uh, I think, Dolce & Gabbana, as well as some sports figure licenses like uh, Muhammad Ali. And so what happened was arena group who'd been operating Sports Illustrated, uh, they failed to make a payment, that agreement's terminated. I'm wondering, what do you think is the value of the Sports Illustrated brand now? I mean, this was the sports brand when I was growing up, but now you've got things like The Athletic. Did Sports Illustrated still have that cachet?
1: I, I don't think it does it, it reminds me like watching Sports Illustrated sort of this the this Sports Illustrated story play out over over the last several decades I mean it, it was a big part of my childhood growing up I mean I remember it very yeah. well like I, just every week you know, the New Sports Illustrated came in and I mean it was just it was a big deal right I mean it reminded me that immediately this reminded me of the, of the Warren Buffett quote first come the innovators then come the imitators then come the idiots and and I think for the longest time Sports Illustrated was the innovator in the space. They were the ones that really were doing something special, something noteworthy, something different. Um, and I think a lot of that was was based on just the, the landscape at the time, right? This is pre-internet, so distribution was a big deal in that regard. And Sports Illustrated had figured that out, right? Distribution was a big part of the equation when you think about sports reporting on the whole, I mean, it really is at the end of the day, it's a commodity business. Personalities, I think, play a bigger role today than than probably ever before when it comes to sports reporting. And, and I think you can, you can look at the sports landscape now. I mean, you mentioned the athletic. That's one of many names out there that really are out there competing in the space. I mean, look at... Look at how quickly things like Barstool Sports or Outkick. I mean, look at personalities like Pat McAfee or Colin Coward, Stephen A. Smith. I mean, it, it, it's much more now than it used to be before, right? Distribution is is what was once a competitive advantage, it's not really the advantage anymore, right? SI had to lock on that back in the day. It was how we got it. But, I mean, as we've seen with so many businesses, the internet has brought those costs down to basically nothing. Uh, which which brings a lot of, of new competitors into the space right the, the imitators and I mean I people may hear the word imitator and think poorly but but honestly I mean that's that's where a lot of money is made there folks that are kind of copying what you're doing we've just got new ways of disseminating information disseminating that content it, I think it could be argued very effectively that si has been completely asleep at the wheel when it comes to this stuff um, and so yeah it it I, it's a shame to see a brand that carried so much sway for so many years really kind of lose its status, but it has. And, and I don't know that the brand itself is even enough really to get it back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's a really good point. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I mean, we've seen so many brands go this way and there's, there's always the chance that, that authentic finds someone else to manage it. But, but at this point it's, you know, not not the happiest way to, to see it go.
1: No, it just it requires constant attention. It requires reinvention. You can never take your audience for granted. It's just it's it's not something where you can rest on your laurels. And it feels to me like maybe SI for a while really kind of uh, perhaps is a little bit a little bit guilty of, of maybe resting on its laurels. And, and I think that's kind of gotten where they are where they are today.
0: Yeah, yeah. A brand is a living thing. Well, thanks for breaking it down with me today, Jason. Thank
1: you.
2: Ricky Malvi with Motley Full Money here to tell you about a vehicle that is redefining sporting luxury, the Range Rover Sport. The first thing I noticed when I sat down in the driver's seat is that I felt like I was in a cockpit. You're up off the ground in a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. I also really appreciated the overhead 360-degree camera view that let me know exactly where I was going as I was backing out of the parking space. I went for a drive in the Range Rover Sport out in Littleton, Colorado, tested the accelerator just a little bit and felt the performance and agility. It's an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. To put it plainly, the Range Rover Sport is powerful. It's also quiet and comfortable. Advanced cabin technologies, such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. I'd like to invite you to visit LandRoverUSA.com to learn more about the Range Rover Sport.
0: We talk about a lot of stocks on the show, but it's just a peek at the Motley Fool's investing universe. This year, we're rolling out a new offering. It's called Epic Bundle. The service includes seven stock recommendations every month, model portfolios, and stock rankings, all based on your investor type. We're offering Epic Bundle to Motley Fool Money listeners at a reduced rate as a thanks for listening to the show. So for more information, head to fool.com slash epic 198. We'll also include a link in the show notes for you. You may know h Block is a tax prep company, but that's just one part of its growth story. I caught up with the Chief Strategy and Small Business Officer, Jameel Khan, for a conversation about how H&R Block is harnessing artificial intelligence and what he's seeing in the gig work economy. I think most people think of H&R Block simply as tax prep. We've all seen the commercials, but what would you like people to know about the company as a whole as we get started here?
3: Yeah, you know, I'd agree that our, you know our core competency is tax prep. You know, we meet the needs of our clients by blending human expertise and cutting-edge tech to maximize their tax outcomes. But I'd also share, as a company, we do so much more than seasonal tax, tax prep. You know, through our small business, Block Advisor Services and Spruce, our mobile banking app, you know, we're meeting our customer, customer needs throughout the year. And whether our clients are a single mum, a small business owner who owns a, you know, a plumbing business, or an Uber driver who has a, a side hustle, you know, we're committed to maximizing their financial wellness and providing a, a human touch, too.
0: Interesting. I'm curious about Spruce because I don't think most people would associate h uh, Block with banking. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
3: Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's, it's not my area of expertise, but I'll give you a little kind of high level. You know, It's a mobile banking app. We launched it about a year ago. And really, it's, it's providing a checking account, savings accounts for clients. It's no fee. Um, and it's really, you know, we, we've had some great feedback from that on from our clients. We have both, you know, H&R Block tax clients who use it and also people who just use the app by themselves as well.
0: Interesting. So, you joined the company in, in 2019. Of, of course, you'd heard of the company, probably seen it from afar. What surprised you once you got on the inside?
3: Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, my biggest surprise was just how big the growth opportunity was for us as a company. You know, we'd been flat for many years, and the reason I joined is I saw some growth. But, you know, once I got a little closer and a a peek under the hood, so to speak, you know, I could just see the opportunity. So, we have three lines of business, consumer tax, which we're really well known for, and that's how everyone thinks of us, small business, and financial products. And we were best known for, you know, as I mentioned, uh, consumer tax at the time. But I, I really didn't realize just how big the growth opportunity was for the other lines of business, which included small business, financial products, you know, they were meaningful, established businesses, but with a lot more upside. And over the last few years, we've realized some of that growth, and it's been a, a pretty exciting journey.
0: I'm sure it has. And of course, last year, it probably got a lot more exciting with generative AI and the AI craze that I think has swept up yeah. every company. And you know, even from the outside, I can see some potential applications for, for H&R Block. As as a chief strategy officer, this thing comes at you. You see everybody integrating AI. How did you start the process of thinking about how it would work with the company?
3: You know, we tend to really think about the customer and start with the customer because everything we do is is for our customers. Um, so I'd say, you know, speaking to Block Advisors, which is the brand we go to market for with small businesses, we knew that small business owners feel pressure to make the best choices for their company. You know, entrepreneurs often want to know what should they be doing now, what should they be doing in the future to optimize their taxes? And these needs really inspired our AI tax assist product, which we launched in the last month or so, which helps clients choose, which helps clients who choose to do their own taxes. So the products, you know, this product is an AI product. It helps them efficiently work through their tax preparation process, answer questions, as well as give it specific guidance on tax rules. Um, we're still in the first innings. We're still learning a lot here. Um, but you know, that's, that's really how we started thinking about this.
0: Interesting. So I'm assuming that you would have to sort of figure out, a, a large language model of all of the rules and regulations across the entire country. Like how, how did that even start? How did you even start that process? Yeah, well,
3: think about it a couple of ways. So firstly, we have a partnership with Microsoft and their open AI service. So that's helped us a lot. And we've really taken that partnership and their technology and we've combined it with our own expertise. So we have an organization uh, called the Tax Institute, which is also, you know, our internal think, think tank, which really helped us update those thousands of tax law changes that occur every year at the state level, at the federal level, at the city level. And we're making sure our model works with our, in, in conjunction with the, the LLMs we have, and really it's kind of providing answers. Um, and we've seen, you know, it's, it's, it's been running for about a month now and we've seen, seen it having an, an impact on our customers.
0: I'm curious about the ways that people choose to interact with, with HNR block, because you've got this AI and I'm assuming that AI maybe doesn't necessarily connect with anybody, with everybody. You know, some people really want to use AI driven tools. Some people really want to go into an HNR block office and talk face to face with someone. What are you noticing in terms of who wants to do what? Are there demographic differences? What do you see?
3: Yeah, I'd say, you know, it's it's less so around demographics, but more about kind of customer need and their want and where they are. So we think about our customers. We have customers who, what we call, do DIY tax. That's you're doing your own taxes. You do it online. And that's where our AI tax assist is really helping them now. I can share some examples of uh, stories I've heard already um, but then you have customers who want a human. they want a human, they want their tax professional to help them. and you know you can see them in a couple of ways. There's those who want human help but but never want to go into an office. they'll send their details, they'll work by phone, they'll work by email. It's how I get my taxes done with my tax pro um, yeah. for five years now and I haven't uh, haven't yet met my tax pro and it's all done virtually. it works really well. But then I can tell you that most uh, uh, most Americans, Live within a five-mile drive of an HR Block office, and we have, you know, thousands of clients, millions of clients who are coming in into an office. They want to meet, meet, meet their tax professional, shake their hand, ask them questions, and and sit with them. So we we have different options for how they want to um, interact. And I'd say that they all cut across different demographics. Um, and it's really about the need for the for the client and what what they're looking for.
0: Well, thinking about the small business aspect of things, one of the trends that, that I've been following, it just has to be the gig economy, the rise of entrepreneurship and side hustles. It seems to me that that gets even more complicated. What types of shifts are you seeing and what are people kind of asking for on that front?
3: Yeah, that's it's, it's another great question. Like, um, first, of all, I'll say, yes, we've seen huge growth in this space, in the gig space, side hustle, people use different words. And I'd say one of the biggest things we've learned and one of the biggest trends I've seen is that gig workers don't know what they don't know. And let me explain what I I mean by that. You know, the best example is many of them don't realize that in the eyes of the U.S. government that they're classified as a small business. And that comes with um, burdens and uh, additional uh, reporting needs, but also a ton of opportunity as well in terms of being able to deduct expenses, you know, um, amortization, different tax things you can do. So that's been, you know, a real big trend and just, you know, showing that, hey, you're considered a small business now and how we can help optimize you um, and your taxes is, is, is a big part of our business.
0: How do you get the word out for people who may not know they're a small business?
3: Yeah, so firstly, it's, um, you know, it's, you know, when people come and see us in person, you know, we have to explain to them. So like, you know, you're doing a Schedule C now, you're considered a small business. I'd, I'd say a couple of things we're learning. One is um, when you tell someone you're considered a small business and they are doing selling something on Etsy on the side, they're like that's that's not me. Or they're driving for Uber. They don't see themselves as that. So what we'll often say is, hey, here is your you know your your here's your tax situation. Here are the implications of that. So I think you know using language they're comfortable, like you know you're a gig worker or you work for Uber, and we'll talk to you in those terms as opposed to you know. We've had some robust debates sometimes with clients saying, I'm not a small business. I was like, well, (laughs) you know, this is just how your taxes play out and how we can optimize for you. I'd also say, and I was going to say before, the other thing we help, the other trend we see of gig workers is as they get, you know, bigger and grow, their lives get more sophisticated and more complicated. And there's a ton of new regulations. So, for example, I don't know if you've heard of it, but the new beneficial owner information guidelines that the U.S. government asked you to report, This started in the last month you know, we believe 32 million small businesses, which includes gig workers, gonna to have to register, um, register their business. Um, in fact, let me, let me just th- do a redo on that. Uh, not all gig workers, but some of them will need to do that. So I, I don't wanna scare people off here, um, but they're gonna to need to register their business and we help them do that with new services we have. Um, as they get even bigger and they become more professional, they may need bookkeeping, they may even need payroll to pay others or pay themselves. And we see some people start as a, a gig side hustle, and it can end up in a full time job, which is just um, an amazing part of the uh, the American entrepreneurial experience.
0: So, what are you watching in general beyond tax prep as uh, growth areas for for H and R Block in general?
3: Yeah, if I think of um, you know if I think of the small business area that that, that I oversee, um, you know, I'd expect there to be growth, you know, in all the areas. So let me say, you know, if in small business tax. Will benefit from the growth of gig and side hustle workers. As those businesses mature, we expect bookkeeping and payroll to grow, as more people need that. Um, and as I mentioned, to you, we're just getting started with the beneficial ownership service that we have, and I think that has um, a lot of potential. Um, and we're also helping our clients think through the implications of registering their business, becoming an LLC or other um, forms of registration. So I think all of those have, you know, a lot, a lot of headway. You know Our biggest share relative is in tax, and we think there's a lot of upside in, in all the other areas. So I'm pretty, pretty excited about the uh, the coming years, and it's going to keep us all very, very busy.
0: As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm DJ Woolard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.